Welcome to Journal Spotting. Do you love medical podcasts, but sometimes wish your favourite shows would just team up for the odd awesome episode? Your ears are definitely in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to yet another Roundup Extraordinaire. Jonna, are you feeling nostalgic? Bearing in mind it was almost exactly two years ago that we released our very first episode. Hello Barney. Uh, yeah, I remember two years ago. Uh, for those of you that don't know the magical story of how Journal Spotting started, uh, it started with two bald guys getting set up by a work colleague because they both just love podcasts and ends with some <laughs> low quality audio recordings in a hospital broom cupboard. What a journey, Barney. Two years later. May, I'm still waiting for Disney to get in touch because I think this is such a, <laughs> a beautiful story. You can just imagine animations, maybe some sort of three part epic thing. Um, anyway, for those of you who have been with us since the very beginning, massive thank you and um, congratulations. In fact, you have earned yourself your very own gold star. Yeah, we've discussed this, Barney. Uh, our HE grant doesn't actually cover merchandise giveaways. They already said no to those journal spotting hospital gowns that you designed. They would have been beautiful. They would have been so beautiful. Um, so listeners, to get your extra special gold star, go to your email or WhatsApp or whatever. And what you just do, you just go down, you click on the text box, you look for that little smiley face, you, you click on it and you type in star. Right. Okay. So Barney's distributing emojis as gold stars. Uh, now that we've covered your top parenting tips, Barney, I think we need to get the show going. And we've got some exciting guests to introduce. Uh, this month, we're joined by Ian and Stephen, both hosts of the MDT podcast. It's a podcast that has both the best pun name and the best educational material for anyone interested in elderly care. If you haven't already, go and listen and hit subscribe. They cover everything you could possibly want to know about elderly medicine, and much more. In fact, the last episode I listened to was about um, refugees and immigrants and their rights in the NHS, and it was it was really fascinating. So, um, it's a, yeah, it's brilliant. Give it a go. Stephen and Ian, would you, uh, would you like to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit more about your show? Yeah, Stephen, shall I go first? Um, so I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician, and I work down in uh, Surrey and Sussex Healthcare, which is down by Redhill Gatwick Way in Surrey. And myself and a colleague who couldn't be here today, Joe Preston, who's a consultant geriatrician in George's, um, had this idea of making a podcast, uh, a bit like you guys. You know, we, we thought, well, let's just sort of see what we can hash up. We, we, we started making um some sort of rough trials and did some sort of rough recordings and then got in touch with our local technology enhanced learning section of health education england who gave us a grant and so we could then actually record it properly and we have a whole faculty and we like to think that we are the best <laughs> evidence-based um podcast for education about older people um, and as you quite rightly said we love a pun so we have the mdt um like a cup of tea uh, and also the the best way of looking after older people we have the mdt and cake which is our conference and knowledge exchange program for when we've uh, been to a conference we'll record our thoughts about it um we have a sip of the mdt 
which is uh, like a, an infographic that we produce. And then the, there are other things coming that, that Stephen will, will know about. Um, and then over the last couple of years, well, maybe the last four years now, uh, we've also managed to secure some funding to have someone work with us um, to help make the podcast, help do some of the education at East Surrey, uh, where I work. And this year it is uh, Stephen. Yeah, so we were just talking before we started the call about how this could be the best medical job in the UK. It's fantastic. So what I do at the minute is I work alongside Ian and the rest of the team as a podcast fellow. So part of my week is clinical on the wards as an elderly care doctor, but the rest of my week is teaching other doctors and healthcare staff and then using the remainder of my time to focus on the podcast, doing interviews editing things, trying to get word out there about the podcast. So it's been a huge amount of fun. I've been in the role since October and I'm doing it for a year with one other teaching fellow who is a paramedic called Georgie. And the two of us will be working side by side with Ian and Joe putting out the MDT over the coming year. And what we're trying to do this year, which is different from what they have done before. So they had a hundred episodes before we joined the team on lots and lots of different aspects to do with elderly care. This series, we are focusing on a day in the life of each different member of the MDT in the hospital. So our first episode that has just been released a week or two ago was about a day in the life of a paramedic. And our plan is to work our way through the full hospital MDT with an episode on each team member. So um, anybody listening can have a better understanding of what their colleagues do at work. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing, guys. And Stephen, you're right, that is the absolute dream job, which uh, <laughs> sounds fantastic. So well done on getting that. Great. Well, we're really, really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's going to be great to, uh, we've tried to theme some of the articles for this roundup around um, uh, your specialty, so um, care of the elderly. So yeah, we're, we're very excited for this evening, for this episode. Thank you. We're, we're very excited to be here. So thank you very much. Uh, before we really get stuck into the meat of our uh, roundup, uh, just to lighten the mood a bit, anyone get anything good over Christmas? This is the first time we're back uh, after the Christmas break. Stephen, did you unwrap anything under the tree? A new, a third podcast mic maybe? or? <laughs> um, no, I recently got into art and Ian can tell you a bit about this as well because he started going to the art studio that I went to classes at first. So um, we've both kind of taken up a new hobby recently. But after moving to Surrey last October, I signed up to this local art studio for evening classes and got really into my chalks and charcoals. So I clearly went on about this enough around my family that they got me my own set of chalk pastels. So I am going to be trying to create some masterpieces with those very soon. <laughs> Amazing. Sounds brilliant. Brilliant. And um, my best thing would be a pile of wood. So next to my desk here, which um, uh, unfortunately we're recording this and, and the camera's not working, so you can't see, but um, there's a, a nice pile of little bits of wood. Uh, and so for, it's kind of a two-stage present. So for my birthday, which is a few months before Christmas, my parents bought me a um, a pyrography thing, which is like a, it's a bit like a soldering iron. So it heats up hot and you can draw on bits of wood. Um, uh, but I had no wood. And so for Christmas, I got bought a pile of wood <laughs> to attack with this this hot iron. <laughs> That sounds absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think it just, just shows, doesn't it? Um, medics, we love to be creative. We need some sort of creative outlet um, from our jobs, from science, from everything. And it, it's um, often the weirder, the better. So uh, that's yeah. great. Ian. Yeah. <laughs> as always, listeners, if you are enjoying the show, hit subscribe and give us as many stars as you can squeeze in on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. 
follow us on Twitter at Journal Spotting, share us with all your colleagues and maybe email us some delightful feedback to journalspotting at gmail.com. Barney, I'll ignore the fact that you're not interested in what I got for Christmas. That's fine. We'll just move on. Not at all interested. Uh, <laughs> let's just get on with the literature. Ian, uh, do you want to kick us off with a um, study that you found? Yeah, cool. So I've got uh, a study of being a geriatrician. So this is from Age and Aging, and this is this month's uh, edition. So January 2022. Um, and it is a systematic review, and the title is Behaviour Change Interventions to Increase Physical Activity in Hospitalised Patients, a Systematic Review, Meta-Analysis and Meta-Regression. It's a bit of a meta-title, I have to say. Um, I guess I guess we could start with a question. So if you're admitted to hospital and you have an acute medical or surgical condition, how much of your time is sedentary? I don't mind jumping in. I mean, I, I think it's... It's got to be over 90%. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, on average, and I would probably even go as high as maybe 95%. Yeah, exactly. So it's over 90%. And the vast, vast majority of uh, hospitalised patients do less than 1,000 steps a day. Mm. If you've broken your hip, which is my, my core work, um, patients in an acute hospital average 36 steps per day. Right. Okay. And... We know at the same time, if you go to rehab, you still spend less than 10% of your day actually doing activity with only around 400 steps a day. And that comes with a whole series of sort of knock-on effects. It increases your risk of deconditioning. Um, and we've all seen the end PDA paralysis um, stuff that's been going around over the last few years. Um, we know it increased the risk of VTE. Barney, I know you'll be keen about that. I, I, <laughs> Absolutely. I you out. Yeah. Um, it increases your risk of atelectasis, aspiration pneumonias, increases your mortality risk, increases your morbidity of all sorts of things. And we also know that if you're in bed um, for 10 days, so your first 10 days when you're critically unwell, you can lose 30% of your muscle mass. So the point of this article was to try and see whether or not there are any relatively simple behavioral techniques that we could do or implement to increase physical activity in a hospitalized population. There are studies looking at behavioral techniques in other healthcare settings, but not hospital. Uh, or, or, sorry, there are studies in hospital, but there is no specific review as yet mm. uh, of effectiveness. So they defined physical activity as an amount of daily energy expenditure which is a point just to note. So therefore, studies needed to be objective about this. <clears throat> they looked at behavioural interventions uh, according to a 40-item taxonomy, uh, which I did not know existed. Um, and they sort of tried to pull of the, all of those together. And then they did the usual sort of thing that you would for a systematic review. They came up with a large number of initial articles, so nearly 3,000 articles. They filtered them out and ended up with a relatively small number for the meta-analysis, which was 19 articles. Um, the There was pretty good concordance with the reviewers' thoughts about the full-text articles. Less so, much, much less so, um, about the thoughts on the abstracts from which they then chose full text articles, which I just think is an interesting thing when you're going through something like this. You know, we you, you sort of, you know, as we read them, you, you 
see that they filter out, you know, 2,600 articles, but actually how many of those actually could have been quite helpful, you know? And then what they found was that if you look at um, behavior change techniques, and I'll come on in a second as to what they might be, there was a small to moderate effect at increasing physical activity compared to the usual care. If you only looked at the trials that were in an acute setting, there was a larger effect than the slightly smaller number of trials they looked at in a rehab setting. So essentially, behavioural change techniques improve the amount of activity that people are doing. But what they didn't do was improve um, length of stay, mortality, other Mm. sort of um, aspects of this. So the the techniques, the behaviour change techniques are things like goal setting, feedback on your performance, reviewing the goals that you've set, um, giving people instructions on uh, how to perform a certain behaviour or certain tasks and such like that. Um, so that's the sort of way that they did it. And yeah, so it's a moderate, a moderate change, uh, which I thought was interesting. Do you think, Ian, a moderate change, um, obviously that, that's good. Um, and you know, it sounds like they're hopefully fairly simple in, you know, things that we can do to increase it. But do you think the reason they didn't see sort of any hard outcomes like you know, length of stay and things like that is because um, a moderate on 36 steps is, I don't know, 40 something steps is just not far enough. Actually, we need a yeah. substantial change. Exactly. Yeah. If we're looking at a 10% change, you know, which which would be a fairly decent going change, that's only adding four steps a day. That's going to do absolutely zip, mm. you know. So we we what we need to do is a whole sea change, you know, a, a whole revolution in the way that we look after people in hospital so that we don't lose the 30% muscle mass. Because, you know, we know if you're older and you've lost 30% of muscle mass in your first five, six days in hospital, you're never going to get that back, you know. And we're great at discharging people from hospital so what we do is we lower the chair uh, raise the chairs we raise the bed we put help in but what we don't do is three months later go and put the chairs back to the normal height and really encourage you to build muscle mass back up um and so i'm sure that um early interventions in hospital completely more than uh, what we're doing at the moment will have an effect but yeah you're quite right i, th- I think you know even if there was a 20 percent effect in someone with a hip fracture, that's only another, you know, ten steps a day. <laughs> that's, mm. you know, that's that's not 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 a significant, you know. I think this is fascinating. And uh, I excuse my an anecdote, but about about a decade ago, when I was doing hepatobiliary <laughs> surgery as a foundation doctor, um, there was an Italian um, senior registrar who was just shocked that um, our patients were so sedentary, and he said that in the, in their hospitals, um, post surgery they had exercise bikes on the wards, which they had to do every day. I mean, is this something which is, uh, you know, widespread worldwide or is this something, a problem in the NHS? Um, yeah, no, it, no, I think it is more widespread. So I, um, uh, for various reasons, was uh, visiting a hospital in Qatar um, a few years ago and they had uh, like a, I say a gym on each ward and I don't mean like the sort of gyms you would envisage on our wards at the moment, you know, like with exercise bikes, with treadmills and stuff and and people had programmed uh, activity on that even people that you know I, I was sort of looking at going I, I really wouldn't do that, <laughs> that, that you know it, 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 it's because you know we're, we're we're embedded in the culture that we're in aren't we you know and, and to change that is sometimes requires a whole um sea change of thought um but yeah I think other other areas of the world do do that you know I know rehab services in Austria um well they're geared to two things really one is about keeping you well 
and having a real big focus on wellness as you age. And then the second is when you do require rehab, really intense uh, rehab that focuses on, you know, also, also you know, your, your diet and your, your protein intake is really important as well if you're going to try and build muscle and such like, you know, so it's, um, it's a whole multifaceted approach that's not just, you know, can we encourage people to get out of bed and take a few more steps each day? You know, it's much more than that. Interestingly, you, you said about the exercise bikes, though. They, they did do a study up in, um, uh, I think it's Trevor Ong in Nottingham, looking at static bike pedals um that you can put on the floor in front of patients and giving people to do that and they they had time set aside each day and research assistance to make sure that you know people were sort of strapped into the pedals and such like and uh people's activity level did not increase um and so you you can oh, shame it, it, it's yeah exactly yeah they put a lot of time and effort in it and it didn't you really can lead a horse to water much. yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah <laughs> so so there is a something about a, a cultural shift both both with our patients and ourselves. And Ian, do you think um, reading this paper, do you think it's going to change your practice in any way? I think it it it, it tells me that behaviour change interventions do help somewhat. Uh, I don't think it's going to change what I do, but I think it's going to reinforce what I do already and really trying to make sure that my patients do a few more than 36 steps a day. Brilliant. Excellent. Uh, that's a really interesting article. Thanks for sharing that, Ian. I'm going to carry on... Um keeping you guys sort of close to care of the elderly medicine just so that you don't feel too far away from it um we're going to talk about osteoporosis treatment with bisphosphonates and presumably this is kind of your bread and butter ian and stephen uh can you maybe remind us which patients uh, are actually eligible for bisphosphonates so yeah so i think i mean there's a good nice guideline on this but essentially if you are over the age of 75 and you have had a fragility fracture so a fall from standing height leading to a fracture of a significant bone you should be on bisphosphonates if you are under 75 and you have risk factors or a fragility fracture then you probably should be on bisphosphonates but we need to do a bit more of an assessment first and that assessment comes in two forms the first is a general sort of risk assessment for further fracture and the one that I personally like is the FRAX score, F-R-A-X. You can Google it, it comes up easily. Um, and the reason that I like the FRAX score is when you've calculated the risk, you press go and it links you to the National Osteoporosis Guidance Group guidelines and tells you what to do. And for some people, you just start treatment if the risk is very high. Uh, for some people, you just give lifestyle advice. So maybe we could talk about that. And then for the middle group of people, you assess bone density and you do that with a DEX. Brilliant. That's very clear. There's a group of people listening to that that just heard input score and follow directions, but uh, it's always helpful. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah, so, I was one of them. And yeah. the, the reason why, I guess, we're starting bisphosphonates is uh, for, for the reasons you've outlined, Ian, is really because they're effective at reducing osteoporosis and fractures in the future. But I, I think we have imprinted on our brains from medical school some of the dreaded side effects of bisphosphonates. I mean, has anyone here ever actually seen osteonecrosis of the jaw? Once. Secondary to bisphosphonates. Sorry, I should have, <laughs> should have said. Yeah, that. so I've seen it once. Secondary to bisphosphonates, oh. but only, uh, but not someone on bisphosphonates for osteoporosis. Fine. So on much higher doses. Yeah. So the risk, based on the reading I've been doing, is about one in a hundred thousand. Um, but there are also some really troubling other short-term side effects, uh, particularly GI side effects such as indigestion. You get a kind of erosive esophagitis. Um, you also have some musculoskeletal um, joint pains and complications. And, you know, I mean, any medication that comes with a recommendation to stay upright for 30 minutes after ingestion, you know, is kind of packing a punch for the esophagus. So these these medications do come with their short term risks. 
Yeah, so so I can see a bit of a conundrum there, isn't it? Um, so you've got some potentially significant short-term side effects that where maybe there's some things that we could do to help with, um, weighing up against uh, significant long-term benefits uh, of fracture reduction. Yeah, absolutely, and it and it's vital really with that in mind that we try and target therapy to those that really need it most. And one way to try and identify what tend to be older women who might benefit from bisphosphonates is to compare um, a measure of life expectancy with a concept called time to benefit. Um, And I'm going to come on to the paper that discusses this. But um, time to benefit is basically the time between the initiation of a preventative intervention when harms are most likely to occur to the time when health outcomes tend to improve. So when you tend to get a benefit from that treatment. So if life expectancy is shorter than time to benefit, there's not much point giving the treatment as they will experience the harms without getting the benefits. To give a kind of well-known example for statins, you need about two and a half years of treatment to avoid one major cardiac adverse event in about 100 patients on statins. All right, John, you had to lever in some cardiology. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, back to actually to the bisphosphonates, Um, this study, uh, which is in JAMA uh, last month by Deardoff et al. It's a meta-analysis of 10 randomized controlled trials with about 23,000 postmenopausal women who all had osteoporosis. Um, and the study population had about a mean age of uh, 63 to 74 years of age, and they were followed up for between one and two years. And now the pooled meta-analysis, uh, which is the main finding of this study, found that 12.4 months were needed to avoid one non-vertebral fracture per 100 postmenopausal women receiving bisphosphonate therapy. Did they look at other types of fracture? Yeah, absolutely. So they broke it down. Uh, they looked at uh, hip fractures. So 200 women would be uh, would need to take bisphosphonates for about 20 months to avoid one fracture. And then for clinical vertebral fractures, about 200 women would need to be on them for one year. So that's kind of giving us that concept of time to benefit. So how long do you actually need to be on a bisphosphonate before you accrue any benefits, i.e. to prevent fracture. Any thoughts on, on hearing these numbers, Ian and Stephen? So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that that's kind of what it says, because that's kind of what myself and the people that I work with, we, we roughly use as our yardstick. You know, we, we sort of think about life expectancy and sort of in our minds with someone with a hip fracture think, is their life expectancy going to be around two years or more, in which case I'm likely to start a bisphosphonate. Uh, if it's under that, then then I'm less likely to. For me, I, I think of a couple of things. One is about vitamin D levels, and I think you need to have normal vitamin D levels for them to have any effect. Um, and then the second thing is, um, it tells me that they're, they're good drugs, but they're not amazing. And so if someone's getting significant short-term side effects, what I tend to say to people is, look, this drug is going to reduce your fracture risk by about a half in about a year to two years' time. And that's great. But if their fracture risk is a 1 in 10, you're going to turn that to a 1 in 20, which, yes, it's benefit, but it's not huge benefit for that individual person. And so if they're suffering significant dysphagia and um, or dyspepsia, rather, um, then you know perhaps it's not worth it for that individual patient but you don't have to be bolt upright for 30 minutes. (laughs) There are things that you can do to try and reduce that a little bit. Um, But yeah, I think that's quite reassuring. It kind of fits with what what we're doing at the moment. Brilliant. Um, Yeah, I I think I thought it was a really useful concept to explore. And I guess it's a sort of attempting to individualize treatment decisions as as much as possible. You can imagine for some older women, 
the delayed benefit of fracture prevention, you know, might outweigh the immediate GI symptoms, while others, as you say, might think, well, I don't particularly want to go through the immediate adverse effects, knowing that there's a kind of one in a hundred chance of benefit at 12 months. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I think it's a helpful, um, helpful to have the data to kind of actually sort of confirm, as you say, what you're, what you're already advising your patients. Yeah, and all of this is about making informed decisions with you and your patient, isn't it? And, and informing the discussions that you have with people mm. and that's that's the, the key bit yeah I, I just worth keeping in mind as well that that um this is a meta-analysis obviously of randomized control trials and the populations that are eligible for randomized control trials are probably slightly different to the ones that we see on the ward as well brilliant thank you john thanks for, for your input that's really helpful and i think we're going to stick on the um the elderly theme and Stephen, um the man with the the job which we all want. He's gonna he's gonna tell us about metazapine uh, in the elderly. So yeah, looking forward to hearing what you've got, Steve. Yeah, so um, specifically in elderly patients with dementia. So um, I guess one of the real complications of people living with uh, advanced dementia and the people who live with those people is that agitation can be quite a, a troubling symptom, and it's something that as much as we are able, we want to try and help control. Um, so the first study I want to mention is a paper from The Lancet by Professor Banerjee et al. And it's a study that was aiming to assess the effectiveness of mirtazapine in treating agitation in dementia patients. So this was a double-blind randomized controlled trial uh, done initially on a cohort of 204 patients with dementia. However, over the course of the 12 weeks of the study, due to either death or withdrawal of consent, this number was down to 171 patients by the time the data was gathered in. And out of this 171, there were 81 patients in the mirtazapine group and 90 patients in the placebo group. The average age of both groups was around 82 years old. So that's the sort of age range we're looking at. Each patient on the drug arm of the trial was treated for 12 weeks with mirtazapine on a daily basis with follow-up at 6, 12, and then 16 weeks. And the placebo patients had the exact same follow-up meetings arranged too. Uh, the primary outcome of level of agitation was measured using an assessment tool I'd never heard of before called the Cohen-Mansfield Agitation Inventory, or CMAI. And in both groups, they found that agitation decreased over the 12 weeks from their baseline scores. But uh, importantly, there was no significant difference in the effect of the mirtazapine over the placebo. In terms of any adverse effects, there was no significant difference between the groups, except for a non-significant but slightly higher care burden that was noted in the mirtazapine group at 12 weeks. To be honest, it was it was quite a well-written paper, and the authors did a really good job of explaining the complexities of dementia and how dementia can make life so difficult for the patients and those caring for them. And they mentioned in the piece that behavioral symptoms affect up to 90% of people with dementia and stressed how agitation can be one of the most common and difficult symptoms for family and caregivers to deal with and from the work that we do we know that's absolutely true but what they have been able to show with this paper is that mirtazapine is not going to be the medication to solve this agitation in people with dementia and ultimately that's really helpful for us in elderly care medicine because it helps steer us away from unhelpful and ineffective meds and helps guide us towards better and more effective alternatives. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Stephen. These, these studies are important and they're often frustration, frustratingly negative, aren't they, with uh, dementia and agitation and delirium. And um, there's very little, there's very few medications which seem to have any benefit in these sorts of cases. But as you say, it's important to know that and it's important to have the evidence there to potentially stopping these you know, these things or not prescribing them if they're not going to help. What um what do we have good evidence for in terms of managing agitation symptoms, in particular in the kind of long term and in the home setting? Um, Ian might have a better idea of the ones that would be sort of first line ones that I have seen given um, would be things like quetiapine, haloperidol. Yeah, so I think that what we have evidence for is, uh, so so I guess in the UK, we'd, we'd call this BPSD, um, so behaviour and psychological symptoms of dementia. And so we have evidence for, I think, three, three things. Um, firstly, is non-pharmacological treatment. And I use the DICE acronym, so describe, investigate the cause, create a plan and evaluate. Uh, your interventions. Second is good pain relief. There's some nice studies just looking at paracetamol and just by giving paracetamol you reduce antipsychotic use. Um, And then if you're looking at other pharmacological treatments, a lot of the studies are are not as conclusive as you would like. Um, I personally um, use a combination of acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and memantine. Uh, I think they work quite well, Um, although uh, systematic reviews of them have not been hugely helpful. Just a point to make is I, I met Sue uh, Banerjee, who wrote this paper, uh, when I was in Qatar, which it was said so all, all this stuff comes around. Um, and he was uh, giving a lecture about, because uh, he'd been involved with um, setting up some of the dementia care uh, services in Qatar. Uh, but the, the thing that he was talking about was how words are really important. Um, particularly when we're thinking about cognitive impairment and dementia. And the example he gave was uh, from Japan. And I'm not going to attempt uh, a translation of the Japanese terms, but the old term for dementia in Japan literally translated as decline of intelligence and how it was very stigmatized and really wasn't uh, um, sort of a a condition that people wanted to be labelled with or wanted to look after people with. Um, and so they changed the word and there is now a new, and, and changed the um, the pictogram. And so there is a completely new word now for Alzheimer's dementia. And it's completely changed the mindset for dementia care in Japan uh, because they, you know, literally have a, a new word for it that is not to do with declining intelligence um because that's that's probably not correct well that isn't correct isn't it? <clears throat> i think that's fascinating and I, I i often think about the word dementia and coming from demented and and where, where the, the origins of that and how that affects how we might uh, think about patients with dementia who are demented and getting really simple like thinking about harry potter and the, the dementors you know yeah, things like that, yeah. that this is in our culture to associate it with badness and a bit of evil yeah and exactly so maybe it's time that we have a uh, a paradigm change yeah exactly there's some really nice work that I'd, I'd point people to from a chap called tom kitwood um that's really accessible talking about personhood in dementia and how our attitude actually directly uh, changes the care that people get and then that then leads on to a behavior change itself and then reinforces the problem that we're trying to fix. Hmm. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ian. That's really interesting. Um, we've got two options now. We could hear more about the trip to Qatar, which sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> or we could crack. <laughs> or Barney, I think you've got um, some, what are you going to talk about? 
some respiratory medicine again oh what a surprise here we go some pe's barney come on mate un, yeah this is uncharted territory for me um, <laughs> PEs and anticoagulation this is a, this is a shock for our audience anyway yes i am absolutely right john thank you for your your sarcasm and support um i i have two uh, related articles uh, you know, related to PEs, which I think both have important learning outcomes for medics and respiratory physicians alike. So that's why I'm going to cover them. All right. Fantastic team. Um, a patient comes into hospital with what sounds like indigestion. So of course they get a CTPA as soon as they walk through A&E into A&E and it doesn't show much apart from it does have a small subsegmental PE. So that's a really small PE right as far away, far down the line of the sort of pulmonary artery as you can go. Um, they get referred to medics and what do you do? The patient is is very well. I think when I see that on a scan report, I, I want to treat it. But I think that's because that's the way I've been trained to respond to that. Um, but the history is not really pointing towards a very symptomatic PE. But um, but yeah, I, like if I saw that on a CT report, I'd be thinking, oh, I should probably start treating this. Uh, absolutely right, Stephen, and I think that's it, and I think that's what um, how we how we deal with it uh, in the UK anyway. And if you see it there, we feel like we need to treat it, and that's not really helped by the the current guidance, especially in the UK, which basically says, mm, you know, I don't really know, the evidence is is not really there. We don't have the evidence to support treating it or leaving it. What what I would do, but that's because I'm respiratory perhaps, is I would revisit the history. And if it's typical for a PE, they've whatever, they've got their shorter breath, they've got pleuritic chest pain, the D dimes up, I treat it. I go, okay, that's probably a PE, fine. Um, if I'm not convinced, I'd actually go to a, a respiratory radiologist and get them to review the scans. And, and a surprising amount turn out to be artifact um, or just an error from some poor sleep deprived radiologist who's been stuck in a dark room for 12 hours. So during this you know, this workout, which I'm doing, I also like to discuss with any uninterested FY1, which I can find usually around five in the afternoon. And I like to just tell them how we don't even know if a subsegmental PE actually means anything because part of the role of the lungs is to filter the debris before it gets to the brain. And maybe we all have subsegmental PEs now and then, which we never know about. <laughs> um, and also, if this is an unprovoked PE, this could mean a life time of potentially harmful anticoagulants so we've just got to be you know we've got to be sure i can imagine how fun you must be to work with barney <laughs> <laughs> i can also imagine you telling this sort of story to your children as they go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> poor kids poor kids the sort of nightmares they'll have who knows um but actually the great thing is this article these next two articles look at exactly these two issues i genuinely so, am very excited to hear what you're about to say barney i'm not being sarcastic I, even no matter how much no, you tell me you're not no being sarcastic. No, no, no. I've I've seen uh, this this issue of subsegmental PEs. I have seen crop up time and time again. So yeah, very exciting. I think you're just feeling guilty about uh, mocking me early on, John. But that's fine. Thank you. So the first study I'm going to look at is uh, risk for recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism managed without anticoagulation. And this was in the Annals of uh, Internal Medicine. So this is an international prospective management cohort study, essentially, which essentially followed the ACCP, that's the American Chest something physicians. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten it now, but never mind. This is this is their guidance. Um, and that states that if you find a subsegmental PE or multiple, you should first do leg dopplers, 
If they're negative, you repeat them at one week, and if they're still negative, that patient does not need anticoagulation. So that is the guidance they use in America, or at least in parts of America. So this study followed up 292 patients over 90 days. Of these, the majority actually had symptoms consistent with a PE, and only 13 of those 292 were incidental, completely incidental. Interestingly, 10% of those patients had a DVT at Doppler, either initially or at one week, which is actually probably more than I was anticipating, but 10%. Over 90 days, 3.1% of those who did not get anticoagulation developed a clot. So either that was a proximal PE or a proximal DVT. Of these 3.1%, none of them were fatal. The rate of recurrence or rate of another VTE within 90 days, if you had one subsegmental PE was about 2%, and that was 5.4% if you had multiple subsegmental PEs initially. Also, the rate of recurring clot was higher the older you get, especially if you're over 65. So, Barney, is this going to improve the chats you have with FY1s late in the day? <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Um, there is nothing which will improve my chats with FY1s at the end of the day, <laughs> no matter how much knowledge or information I've got. Um, and and look, I mean, I suppose actually looking at the study, like we thought, the majority of subsegmental PEs are not an issue. And if you just left them alone, probably nothing would ever happen, especially if you're young and it's a single subsegmental PE but they are not insignificant for everyone. 10% have a DVT lurking at the time of diagnosis. Over 5% of the elderly, or those with multiple PEs, end up with a more proximal and more dangerous clot a couple of months down the line. But with the elderly, I suppose they are also more at risk of anticoagulation. You're, you're absolutely right, Stephen. Thank you very much. And you've, you've given me a wonderful segue into my next paper. Barney, before you segue seamlessly into your next paper, I just wonder if we sort of set this next to um, anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation, which we do with a CHADS VAS score of sort of two or more, which I think gives you an annual stroke risk of about two to four percent in that in that area over a year's time. You know, this is not that far off over ninety days, three percent stroke recurrent, three um, percent clot recurrence. What do you think? Um, you're right. I suppose I suppose you're right, and. You could also say that the risk of a stroke is potentially much more significant than a risk of a DVT or a PE, which I'll go into in a little bit more. So don't worry, John, you've also helped me segue into my next paper. You're all teeing me up nicely. Thank you so much. Um, so my next paper is long-term risk for major bleeding during extended oral anticoagulant therapy for first unprovoked venous thromboembolism. And this was also published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So they came as a sort of a pair. Now, there have been multiple RCTs looking at this, this problem. And so the authors did a systematic review and a meta-analysis. For a bit of important background, we know that overall the risk of recurrent VTE after stopping anticoagulant for a first unprovoked clot is 10% at one year and 36% at 10 years. We also know that 4% of recurrent VTE events are fatal. Okay, so that's the data we've got already. So over a third will have a recurrence by 10 years. That is pretty high. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's quite a high number. I think that's probably higher than, well, we wanted when, we, when that data came out. Um, anticoagulation obviously helps. That, you know, obviously, you know, vastly reduces that number. And it gives about an 80% reduction in VTU. So it's not, even though it helps, it's not 100%. 
Um, although this may be improving over time with the widespread use of DOAX instead of things like warfarin. The authors analyzed 14 randomized control, control trials and 13 prospective cohort studies, and that included 17,000, more than 17,000 patients with either unprovoked PE or provoked by minor or transient factors. Now, in this study, the majority was still on a VKA, so that's um, vitamin K antagonist, which is stuff, stuff like warfarin, um, with the rest on DOAX. And the primary outcome was major bleeding events. Okay, the incidence of major bleeding events per 100 person years was 1.74 on those with VKA and 1.12 on DOAX. Uh, Bonnie, I always struggle with this concept, uh, 100 person years. What does that mean? Uh, me too. I know I hate it. I hate it. Um, but the only reason I've included that is because the next bit of information they didn't have it on um, DOAX. So, I mean, a bit easier to understand is that the five-year cumulative incidence of major bleeding was 6.3% on VKAs, on stuff like warfarin, but they didn't have enough data on the DOAX, which is why I included it. The rate of bleeding was significantly higher in if you were aged over 65, had renal issues, um, prior history of bleeding, or you're on antiplatelets already, or if your HB was less than 100. The case fatality rate of major bleeding was between 8 and 10%, so pretty high if you had a major bleeding episode. Okay, so again, Bonnie, how do we, how do you interpret these figures? I mean, 6.3% risk of major bleeding sounds high, but the risk of recurrent VT at one year without anticoagulation is 10%. Yeah, I know it's really difficult to get your head around numbers and I'm probably just going to make it even more murky, but let's try an example. So imagine you've got a, a 50-year-old um, and they're on aspirin, so they've got one risk factor for bleeding. They've had an unprovoked PE and he's given warfarin. I'm using warfarin because that's where we've got the most data. If he stops anticoagulation at three months, his risk of death from another clot at five years is 1% and at 10 years, it's 1.4%. So pretty low. If he continues anticoagulant, his risk of death from bleeding at five years is greater than 1.2%, and at 10 years, it's greater than 2.4%. Not to mention the potential issues of minor bleeding, pull burden, INR, checks on warfarin, etc. So guys, I mean, deciding on lifelong anticoagulation or not is, is not simple, and there are numerous factors up for discussion, but knowing the facts and the stats facts and the stats helps us and our patients make more informed decisions what did you think what have you taken from that does that would that help you at all in that situation i think for me that is quite helpful isn't it because i think it pushes us to thinking about let's let's evaluate this this pe a little bit or this vte a little bit further perhaps with a leg doppler because uh, i think if they've got a dvt there then that that changes your thinking a bit and the levels of bleeding and recurrent clot are not too dissimilar so i think there's a difficult balance there for us to think about um you know do you anticoagulate or not so i think it it adds numbers to that balance doesn't it and again like we said it's it's about informed decisions uh, similar with the the bisosomates we talked about earlier Absolutely. And I think if you, if you take all that information and you, you talk to your patient openly and candidly and they're able to have that sort of conversation with you, at least then you can talk them through it. And, and some patients are very good at making decisions on, based on those sort of facts and some would really struggle, but at least you're able to have that conversation. If we've learned anything about the last year, it's that actually translating some of these risk scores into um, you know, the wider population can be quite difficult and we're maybe not that good at assessing risk, but that's maybe for a separate separate conversation great I, I, and i think my, my one perhaps take home as well from it would be actually if they've got subsegmental pe and we're umming and ahhing about treating or not 
I'll get some leg dopplers because one in ten mm. of them um, will have will have a DVT, and I think that's um, that would make it really clear cut. So I think that would help our decision making. So if if those dopplers came back negative, should we sit tight and not treat? Um, in England, you'd be hard pressed, and I think as I say, it'd be a matter of discussing with with the patient and going through their risks and benefits. I think if we were convinced and the radiologist said, look, no, I think there, I think that is a PE. Most likely, we would anticoagulate, anticoagulate them for three months, and then make a decision on lifelong anticoagulation after that time, if it was unprovoked, of course. Barney, can I ask, is this similar to the sort of lung nodule conundrum that we've got with better quality scanners, and that you know, if we'd scanned this cohort of patients twenty years ago, you know, would we have not seen you know eighty percent of this? You're absolutely right. Now. Um, what we know is that the incidence of PEs is going up, but the sort of the case fatality rate is staying exactly the same. So, um, so what's happening is we are diagnosing more and more and more of these PEs, um, and the treatment is essentially the same. We've been anticoagulating these people for for ages, um, but the um, the death rate isn't going up with the increasing PEs, which means that we're picking up um, more of these incidental PEs, which people aren't going to go on and die from. So, uh, so yes, um, a part of it is more scanning and more detailed scanning. Super. Thanks, Barney. That was great. Um, and now we are going to move on. Stephen, uh, we've haven't met before and I can only see, uh, like one third of your body, but I'm not sure if you're an athlete or not. You've chosen to talk about, uh, <laughs> atrial fibrillation in athletes. I don't know if that's the sort of personal interest or maybe a medical interest so, so, excuse me Stephen he's a, he's a bit of a flirt sometimes but um, anyway, you carry <laughs> on. um no he's probably right to doubt my credentials as an athlete but when I was um looking through the different papers this is one that jumped out at me not only because I did an intercalated degree in sports science during my time at medical school but also I feel like this was in some ways, not necessarily in being an athlete, but it was speaking to me. So um, this study is from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It's by Newman et al. And it shows that athletes may be at greater risk of developing atrial fibrillation. So the two main points of conclusion from this paper are that one, the risk of developing AF was significantly greater in athletes compared to non-athletes. And two, uh, younger, i.e. under 55 years old, and mixed sport athletes had a greater risk of developing AF compared to older athletes and those competing in single sport endurance training. So as I said, it's of interest to me because I wouldn't necessarily call myself an athlete, but I am a very keen triathlete and long distance runner in my free time. And I thought the exercise that I did was good, but now I'm not <laughs> so sure. So the authors of this paper gathered up 13 different studies done over a 30-year period between 1990 and 2020. The total number of participants in all these studies came to just under 70,500 people. The studies that they looked at were eligible as long as they reported the number of AF or atrial flutter cases in athletes with non-athlete control groups alongside them. Studies that did not include a control group were excluded and regression analysis was done to determine the risk of AF in athletes versus non-athletes. Now, the study was limited by the broad range of sports that fall under the mixed sport category, which muddies the water a little bit for knowing exactly what aspect of mixed sport training might contribute the most. When I saw that endurance sport was less risky than mixed sport, 
I was initially reassured because while I do the occasional triathlon race, I spend most of my time at the weekends exercising on long cycles or long runs, so the single sport events. So I thought I would dig deeper to see if any of the sports that I do were in fact protecting me against AF. And the answer is no. A big oh, no. resounding no. So out of the endurance sports analyzed, cycling, which I do on a regular basis, conferred the highest risk of AF. And a sport that I've never done in my life, Nordic skiing, conferred the lowest risk. So the one positive to come out of this study, as far as I'm concerned, is that if you enjoy regular exercise and want to dodge AF in later life, you should move to Norway. So that's <laughs> what my takeaway message and current plan of action is. But um, in the author's discussion, they did touch on the fact that Nordic skiing has always been a favorite subject area for researchers in sports science. And therefore, it took up a disproportionately high amount of the studies they looked at, 36%. In fact, Nordic skiers have always been recognized as the fittest people on the planet with the highest recorded VO2 max readings and things like that. And so sports scientists tend to flock to them for research. And as such, sports that have been looked at less, such as cycling, swimming, may not be getting a fair trial. But what makes this paper strong in its message is that it included athletes, physically active individuals, and sedentary individuals. So it's got good comparators. And as a whole, even though I'm not sure if it's going to affect my own sporting choices, these findings help provide some early evidence for the effects of age and athleticism on AF burden. Um, now, we do need to remember one last thing, that complete lack of physical activity has been associated many times in the past with an increased prevalence of AF. So there's a limit to how far we push the message of this paper. But we can conclude that there is a U-shaped curve in terms of the relationship between exercise and AF burden. So exercise is protective against AF up to a point, but if prolonged exertion in multiple sports is part of a younger person's everyday life, this paper would argue that they are potentially placing themselves at a higher risk of AF further down the line. That's a really interesting article. Did they say uh, how much of a greater risk athletes were at developing atrial fibrillation? Yeah, so the relationship was described as significant and the odds ratio was 2.46 from the results of this paper. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty high. That's really quite high, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I'm guessing I, I had a little read of the paper and they sort of talk about uh, sort of atrial remodeling and atrial dilatation in athletic hearts and maybe a sort of driver of um, atrial fibrillation. Sounds like no one's actually quite nailed the mechanism as to why this happens, mm. but... I mean that's logical, isn't it? I think because mm. um, we know that if you're, you know, if you are very athletic, you do get significant changes, structural changes to your heart, don't you? Mm. Um, I think we should also potentially caveat this with the actual benefits of exercise as well. I mean, I know the WHO was saying I think it's uh, five million deaths a year, something like that, a huge number of deaths a year because of inactivity, possibly even more. So before listeners, you go and go home and decide not to exercise anymore because you heard that you might you want to get AF. Do you remember that actually in pretty much every other way, it's probably beneficial? <laughs> I've, got, I've got to jump in as a geriatrician and say that the, um, the only evidence that we have for treating frailty is exercise mm. and vigorous exercise as opposed to gentle exercise. Really, you know, very vigorous exercise in your mid to later life will reduce your risk of being frail in your very older life. Yeah, and I, I think in that regard, the term 
athlete is very crucial here. Stephen has described himself as not an athlete and then told us that no, he does exactly. many triathlons and spends triathlon. weekends running and swimming. So God knows what his definition of an athlete is. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. No, that's a really interesting paper. And I think um, it's going to be interesting to see future studies in that area because I think it's going to be, it's going to be key and you know, trying to sort of... And everyone's got an Apple Watch. That's brilliant. Yeah, you know? There we go. We'll, we'll find out more and more with all the monitoring, won't we? see a lot of AF. Lovely. <laughs> Quick, John, I think you've got the final paper for us today and looking at um, a favourite of mine, a bit of ultrasound. So what was that about? Yeah, so Barney, I've been getting a lot of phone calls from A&E doctors that go something along the lines of, hi there, I've got a 60-year-old, short of breath, pocus shows some beelines, they don't have a pericardial effusion, I think they have mitral regurgitation, their IVC has collapsed on itself and I can't rule out a ruptured AAA, but I might have seen a left popliteal DVT. That's right, Barney, we're all living in a pocus world and it's pretty crazy. I imagine that you are a fan of the old black and white fuzzy screen. Is that right, Bonnie? Yeah, with with uh, with respiratory, of course, we do love a bit of thoracic stuff. Um, and I did go through a phase of uh, echoing everybody in uh, <laughs> in A&E just for fun. And I did pick up one tamponade that way. So um, yeah, um, I do I do enjoy a bit of focus now and again. Nice. Well, it seems like the emergence of bedside ultrasound into our day to day practice. Um, is really here to stay. And it kind of made me pick this article, which is in JAMA by uh, Sid Sarah et al. It's a really neat randomized control trial to see if focused ultrasound, and the word focused is going to be very important, improves speed and accuracy of diagnosis. Ah, oh, John, you know, I always love a paper which confirms what I'm doing possibly is improves patient outcomes. So hopefully that's where you're going. Yeah, well, hold your breath, Barney. Uh, so this was a single center trial in Melbourne, Australia, and they randomized 250 patients to either receive standard of care or a focused ultrasound of the heart, lung, and lower extremity veins. Now, the patients had to be had to be admitted to the internal medicine ward in the last 24 hours with a suspected cardiopulmonary diagnosis. Now, the focused ultrasound was only performed by one practitioner, who is the lead author of the paper, and they would give the treating team the results of that ultrasound. Now, the control group got standard of care, but they could also have an ultrasound which was performed by the cardiology department or the radiology department, so either an echo or lung ultrasound. Great. Um, And what what was their outcomes, John? Yeah, so um, the primary outcome which they looked at was length of hospital stay. Um, So I guess assuming that ultrasound might improve your speed and accuracy of diagnosis, you would hope that it might improve your or shorten your length of hospital stay. And I'm sad to say that there was no difference, 4.7 days in the intervention group with the ultrasound and 5.2 in the control group. Worth mentioning that they chose a sort of threshold of 24 hours. So ultrasound had to improve length of stay by 24 hours relative to control for significance. So yeah, no difference in length of stay. And there was also no difference in the secondary outcomes, which was hospital care costs and nor 30-day readmission rates. Oh, it's a shame, isn't it? It sounds like a negative trial. I wonder if there was a, uh, some patients actually were quicker because they got a diagnosis quicker and they went through quicker. Others, you had somebody being an ultrasound or making some ridiculous, well, not ridiculous, but some sort of rare diagnosis based on something they found and they end up going through more investigations. And there's probably a mixture like that. What do you think, John? Are you going to go around sabotaging all the ultrasound machines and just just have echo probes just for yourself and your cardiology pals? <laughs> I'm not going to sabotage the ultrasound machines, Barney, but I might at least lock them away in a cupboard. I don't know. On a serious note, I think this is a really great little trial. 
Um, and it's attempted to answer a great question. It said, well, we've got this new diagnostic tool. Let's actually try and conduct a randomized controlled trial to see if it's effective. And, you know, you might say this is a negative trial, but I think there are some limitations. Firstly, and I think this is quite an important point, it's not really point of care ultrasound that w in the traditional sense or the sort of POCUS sense that we like to talk about. Point of care ultrasound is really one that's done alongside the clinical exam at the time, and it really helps you rule out kind of serious or life-threatening emergencies. And it's as you say, Barney, when you're in A&E, you know, you want to know whether this is tamponade, where you put the probe on the chest and find out if it's tamponade. That is ultrasound sort of making a difference to your diagnosis. Whereas here, we've got a situation where ultrasounds are being performed kind of within 24 hours of admission, and they're sort of complementing the investigations that are ongoing, if that makes sense. Other issues that I have with the trial, that it's kind of single center and there's only one person doing the scanning, albeit as logbooks, probably pretty good by now. And also the mean age of the population was 80. Um, and as our MDT colleagues here will know, it's not always the acute cardiopulmonary diagnosis that is the limiting factor to getting discharged. So actually looking at length of stay in this patient population in your 80s, you know, whether you get the ultrasound faster might not be the difference to you getting home. It might be, um, you know, installing a hospital bed at home or something. So yeah, I think it's an interesting trial. It's negative, but I think it raises some questions. Any immediate thoughts, guys? Do you see a lot of ultrasound being done in your hospitals? And do you think it's being done well? So where I work, acute medics teach or set up the uh, famous ultrasound course. So yes, we do a lot of ultrasound in ED and AMU. Yeah, it's not really my my thing. But uh, I see there is there is potential huge benefit there, isn't there? And I guess there is there's great logic, isn't there, behind, you know, we've been using this death cut for hundreds of years. And rather than just listening, why don't we actually see what's going on? A useful negative study. And um, I think, you know, we're going to see more and more ultrasound and we should get used to it and figure out how, how it's going to be beneficial. Yeah. From a, from a cardiology perspective, I think, you know, um, echo services are under a huge amount of strain at the moment and there's a huge backlog because of COVID. Um, I think any intervention that could maybe improve the early diagnosis of heart failure by, you know, somebody doing a bedside ultrasound three days before somebody actually managed to get an inpatient echo, I think can be a useful thing to, um, for patients management. So yeah, I'm sort of quite pro. Brilliant guys. Well, I think that's all our studies. Thank you so much team, Stephen and Ian. It's been brilliant having you on and brought some excellent studies along, excellent articles, and it's been really fun having you with us. Uh, at the end of every show, we like to comb through and pick one or two, uh, you know, top learning points from what we've discussed. So, Ian, do you fancy going first? So I think two for me. Uh, one is metazapine and the negative study for people with BPSD. It's a drug that would previously I would have used in some situations. And so I, I will change my practice for that. And the second one was the debate about subsegmental PEs. I feel like that's drawing-ish towards a conclusion. Um, and I found the discussion about that really interesting. It has made me think about my practice a little bit. Wonderful. Thank you, there. That's great. That's really good. Stephen, what did, what did you think? Yeah, I think the one that'll be most applicable to the work that I'm doing on the elderly care wards is the one that Ian mentioned uh, first on the episode, and that was about the behaviour change interventions for hospitalised patients and how little people are getting on their feet that just the fact that people are only doing 30 odd steps a day seems crazy but then i can completely imagine that's the case because so many of the patients that i walk past i only ever see in their bed and when i talk to them about how much they've been on their feet 
if they haven't been, they'll say, oh, it's because the the physios haven't been around since yesterday. And it's almost like they're waiting for that person who they associate with movement to come around and help them move. Mm. And I think the ones who are physically able without a bit of coaxing from a person won't move. So I'm trying to think, are there any ways that we could encourage mobile patients to get up and improve their chances of a quicker recovery, improve their chances of not losing muscle mass so dramatically. And yeah, I'm just, I I don't know if I have any answers for it just yet, but I'm just trying to think of ways that we could encourage patients to be better at looking after themselves as well. I think just being honest with them, tell them to tell them that actually tell, give them some of the the stats we've heard and tell them to to get off their butts. And a lot of patients would really listen. Actually, if a doctor came around and every day they came around and said, no, you need to move more and walk more. I think that would be a a simple intervention, which would help not everyone, of course, but uh, quite a few people. John, what about yourself? Barney, I actually uh, unsarcastically uh, really enjoyed your um, conversation around, yeah, subsegmental peas and then the conversation around anticoagulation after. So really putting some numbers on um, the risk of death from a VT at five years. If you stop anticoagulation at 1%, weighed up against the risk of death from bleeding if you go on to an anticoagulant around 1.2% at five years. So I thought that was really, really useful um, and certainly probably some numbers that I will return to in the future when I'm sort of managing patients on the wards. Oh, thanks, John. That's very kind. Um, and I and I liked your study, John. I liked the bisphosphonates. I think actually I hadn't got my head around at all. Um, I thought the long term benefits from bisphosphonates came sort of ten years down the line or so. So I think actually that is honestly really useful, just knowing that and having some figures there. And also, as I often go on about cycling and things on this show, um, that is interesting to hear about the risk of AF, and I, it fits with what I've heard before. And it's good to gain some you know, figures for that as well. Um, is it going to change my practice? Is it going to change my cycling? No, but it will sort of, I don't know, it kind of it's Barney, useful w- to know about. Barney, I wouldn't worry, mate. You're not an athlete. Really wouldn't worry. <laughs> That's so true. That is so true. <laughs> Brilliant, guys. Look, thank you again. Um, it's been wonderful having you on. Anything else you want to plug? Not really. You can find us at MDT underscore podcast on Twitter. Awesome. Lovely. Thanks, Thanks guys. So you take care, okay? All the best. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye, Bye-bye guys. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson, with special MDT guests, Dr. Stephen Collins and Ian Wilkinson. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant, our logo Lane and Natalia, and promotion stars Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time, this podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of a guest and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.